what good is it to have an answer you don't know the question to? A question you don't know the answer to is a solid beginning. An answer you don't know the question to is a dead end. You can't reverse engineer understanding from that. At best, you can meditate on that questionless answer. You can sit with the endless paths and possibilities that leads up to that answer until the need for a question dissolves and you finally embrace the void. Warning. This podcast contains foul language, dark invocations, and treating women like their people. Welcome, friends, to episode 42 of Embrace the Void where we lighten things up by asking the question, what is the meaning of all things? And the answer is that we should have never been born. (laughs) I am your host, Aaron. And with me, as always, is my cuddle bro for life, GW. How you doing, G-dubs? I could have swore the answer was 42. Uh, 42, or we should never have been born. Either way. Yeah. Both work here. There is less suffering in the universe if there are no conscious beings. Oh, see, someone did their reading. Looking ahead. Uh, yeah, so today we are finally going to talk about antinatalism. Everyone's been uh, clamoring after this one. This was a topic that I uh, talked about way back in my very early days of podcasting uh, on serious inquiries only, when, right after the name change happened, if anybody wants to go dig that one back up. Uh, but it's a fun topic, so I thought we could do our own work through of it. Um, before we get to that, we had a little bit of housekeeping. Um, we got a lot of really wonderful, um, a lot of very heartfelt and honest responses to the incel episodes. Um, thank y'all very much for all of that. And we, we take every comment very seriously and, and the private messages very seriously. And it sounds like, uh, it resonated with people, um, and, and resonated with the discussions we've had about moral luck that we will be following up more on. Um, but I just wanted to throw in that. We are going to be on She Talks Atheism, Bethany's show, uh, in the soon future, and we will post about that when it happens to do sort of follow-up. So we're not going to dig into the follow-up questions that we've gotten about that episode uh, today. We'll save those for that. Um, But I just wanted to say thanks very much for uh, feeling what we're feeling. Yeah, we have to, like, you know, recuperate a little bit from all of that emotional pain of doing that episode. It's dark. It's very dark in here. Yeah. Uh, so uh, one of the housekeeping thing that we wanted to talk about was um, we had someone who has uh, complained about something a couple of times and uh, decided to no longer be a patron as a result. And since, as you've seen with our episodes talking about language, we, we take these sorts of discussions very seriously. And I think it may be one where... Um, GW and I have a bit of a gentleman's disagreement that, um, you know, we can sort of state our, our views on it and then y'all can, um, sort of follow up with your, your views and we'll go from there. Um, but the concern was, um, GW's use of jokes about getting women to make him a sandwich. Um, and whether that is, uh, a satire and good is a satire or is just, um, uh, another form of sexism, basically, I suppose. So do you want to say your thoughts on that? Yeah, I, um, the, the comment that the person made, uh, uh, I completely agree with, right? I 100% agree with how that joke has been used uh, in industries like he mentioned tech industry. And I'm assuming my assumption is that means like, you know, uh, Silicon Valley tech. As both of us have worked in theater, right, which is a very male dominated kind of area, um, uh, although that is slowly changing, which is great. Uh, There's a lot of sort of women in university who are training to be technicians and designers, um, which is awesome. Uh, One of my experiences was when I worked with uh, female coworkers and I watched men say things to them uh, that was not appropriate. What I would do is I would say the things they would say in their presence to make the men feel uncomfortable and make and help the women feel more comfortable by essentially throwing it in their face, right? 
at using the same words they did in the most absurd way as a way to sort of be an ally, right? And that's that's the reason why I use satirical jokes like that. Um, yeah, I, I get that, and I'm sympathetic to that. Um, I, I think it is hard to... For some, I think it's hard sometimes to to be able to make a clear line distinction between when doing that is a good form of satire and when doing that is kind of claiming to be doing satire while also sort of taking advantage of low-hanging fruit. And I don't think that's what you're doing in this case. I think my largest concern with it is that people who might not be familiar with the show or have not listened to it much or who have listened to it a fair bit but also have issues with that, um, how it reads differently to them. Um, mm -hmm. And I, I think I take a very uh, deferential approach when I'm engaging with people, like uh, for all the, the weird positions that I take and times when I do like to throw down with people, I don't sort of, I don't know, I'll edge away from stuff that people don't like. So if, People, you know, we've we've gotten comments about um, me doing uh, Jew jokes because that's a, a substantial portion of my uh, historical comedic repertoire, um, and I've I've edged away from doing them because I, I understand that for some people that seems uncomfortable, even though I don't feel at all like I'm doing anything wrong personally when I engage in those kind of jokes. They're just things that I will save for friends and and select audiences rather than for this yeah, podcast um, absolutely yeah and i don't i don't know if there's also something to be just said about um the you know more the levels of complexity right there's something sort of easy about the make a sandwich line but if there's a way to sort of satirically play that character poking fun at it in a way that i don't know has more subtlety to it if that's another distinction that might matter some. Yeah, um, I think it's also people. based on on context, right? The last time I said it, uh, which is why this person left us, was uh, when we were talking to Ari, right? And even they laughed at it and joked about it. So, I mean, it like, I am open to the criticism of my timing may be terrible and uh, um, and things like that. And And it was a very fair criticism that I was doing it too often. And I have absolutely pared down on it quite a bit um mm -hmm. and so so one in in on one sort of hand i agree with you and i have already pared down on the other hand i i still see it as an, an ally type tool right because yes i could you know i could essentially be bullied into no longer saying these jokes ever again right but people who actually believe these things are still saying them Right. And if I can mm -hmm. find ways in certain moments to use it as a way to go, yes, there are still people that believe this bullshit and it's absolutely bullshit. Uh, and I am trying to sort of shed light in those dark corners that sometimes they don't always come out. I mean, they do like there, there are those MRA people that will come out and say these things like, you know, the young woman that we had as our hero where people were Twittering her tweeting at her, you know, saying, go make me a sandwich and things like that. And then she literally brought a sandwich to the North and South Pole and said, here's your fucking sandwich, right? Which was beautiful, right? right? So there are actual people who believe that shit. Uh, Absolutely. And yeah. I, I think that I take you seriously when you, when you say that you understand it and that you um, can understand the value of it as a, as a more sparing kind of thing. And also I do agree that, um, you know, the same way that, I will probably never 100% stop making Jewish jokes because mm -hmm. I, I do think there's value in that kind of comedy and that it's okay if it's okay as long as it's not a crutch that one relies on mm -hmm. whenever someone needs a cheap go-to kind of joke, I think is, um, I think, and, and I, uh, and I mean, like you've also, I think, like you didn't do any of that sort of stuff during our discussions of the incels. And on the flip side, I think, you know, folks that we engage with like Bethany are on board with that kind of humor and have often right. joined you in that kind of humor. And so I think there are a lot of um, women's 
who would say, no, you shouldn't be forced to never make any kind of version of that kind of joke again. Yeah. And, and, and I think you pointed out appropriately that like, I would never in a, in a serious conversation about things like sexual assault, I'm never going to bring up any sort of misogynistic type joke. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, when we're talking about some innocuous thing that is like, if we're going to start talking about um, star Wars or something, and I make like, that's the time where I might make a misogynistic joke where it's something that's not in our current consciousness. And I'm going, Hey, remember there's still people who are assholes and sexist. Right. Okay. I feel like we've, we sort of worked this through. Um, so uh, sorry that we lost someone on that, but uh, for those uh, patrons that we still have around, um, I wanted to also throw out that uh, because we hit a patron goal again recently, we are going to do an episode on free will and determinism and Daniel Dennett. Uh, the original goal was uh, I was going to be forced to steal man Dennett myself, um, which I think would have been, you know, fairly entertaining. But um, we've had someone offer an alternative of uh, someone who is very, very familiar with Dennett, another uh, philosophy friend of mine from Twitter, um, who did, I think, his master's thesis on Dennett's free will position, um, oh, cool. has offered to uh, come on and, and argue this with me and steal man his position because he, I think, actually agrees with it. So, <laughs> and um, I, Just to be clear, you said you're, you were going to be forced into taking that position. You right. created that goal yourself, just, just so right. that we understand. I was gonna, I you was had the free will pretend, to create yeah. the goal so that you could actually take that position, just so everyone is, knows the things. <laughs> Or did I? I mean, I didn't write it. <laughs> but just because I wrote it, it doesn't mean I got to choose to write it. Uh, so yeah, so I think we're going to, unless anyone like really desperately needs to hear me suffer my way through that, um, I think it could be a lot of fun to um, actually debate through this with someone who, who does genuinely hold the other position, since I know a lot of you have been to varying degrees slightly resistant to my position and might champion an individual who showed me what's what and it'll be nice to to hear someone who is sort of at the same color belt as you be yeah. able to debate you on something because i'm clearly like barely a white belt and i am definitely not as good at debating you about stuff no i think you do a good job but i do think that's why i'm ha- pretty you are very pretty <laughs> but it's true that you haven't you know read quite all of the things yet so it could be fun to have someone who's yeah uh done that um more learned more more learned maybe more learned than me maybe i'll get my ass beat and that'll be fun yeah there's nothing better than getting your ass beat because then you always learn something yeah um i guess that's all of our housekeeping shall we move on to why we should just not be here at all yeah it, uh, just so you know i'm going to insert a quote right here from star trek uh on season three episode 18 where they reference like like these aliens come and they're like, yeah, morality is for humans <laughs> or, so, or, awesome. or some, some bad thing about morality and humans. Sounds good. This concept of morality is a very interesting human characteristic. We shall have to study it sometime. Now, Mr. Wolf. Um, yeah. All right. So we are finally here, finally talking about the antinatalism. So uh, what is antinatalism? You kind of know this, right? Why don't you give oh, the definition? A little bit. It's it's a oh oh. I might I, um, tell me if I'm using this word correctly in this context. It is an epistemology of not. No, it's not the right mm-hmm. use of that word. Nope. Damn it. Nope, nope. I was trying to sound smart. Oh, okay. good try. No. Uh, in in dumb person terms, it's essentially a philosophical framework on why to not reproduce. Yeah. Good. Um. Yeah, philosophical framework, or if you wanted to, I guess maybe the fancy terms you might use would be a normative theory, a normative ethical theory. So it's it's guiding your actions one way or another, and specifically guiding them away from having the babies. Yeah, and it's a, it's essentially a bunch of ought claims, correct? Right, well, it's a mix of is and ought claims, so you could have a whole hmm. conversation about how much they're inferring a, an ought from an is here. Um, there are a couple of different kinds of antinatalism, so we'll want to look at the different kinds of theories. It's really, it's funny to me that this is kind of a little bit of a cottage industry theory on the internet. It feels like that everyone's, I've seen a lot of people sort of 
enjoying and and thinking this is a really amusing theory. I wonder if it's partly because it kind of feels like trolling as a theory um, in the sense that it is arguing against what is possibly our strongest imperative when you think about our psychological and biological forces within us, the things that drive our behavior, the desire to reproduce is right up there at the top. Mm. So I think it's funny to people, inherently amusing to them to hear a theory where some ivory tower philosopher is going to tell everyone it's your ethical obligation to resist the urge to breed. Yeah. I think that's why it has picked up. It's been picked up as sort of a, a thing. One. So um, I can't remember the name of the individual uh, Sam Harris brought on to talk about antinatalism and they had oh. did a whole episode on it. Yeah. Uh, Bashar, I think is his name. Yeah. Uh, yeah. No, sorry. I'm, not, I'm sorry. Let me cut that. Um, uh, yeah. Uh, Benatar is his name. Yeah. That sounds right. I knew it was, be something yeah Yeah. Uh, he said something interesting that i hadn't thought of which is no one consents to existing which i thought was is an interesting sort of way of thinking about it yeah that's the what we'll see is the, the kantian deontological kind of argument against birth um it's a newer kind of version the older theories are all much more like this goes way back right you can go as far back as buddhism as being one of the earliest sources of uh antinatalism the idea that the the very basic idea that life is suffering and uh bringing someone into existence is condemning them against their will to a life of old age uh illness suffering and then death and that's just wrong And so if we want to escape suffering, what we need to do is remove all of the people from the world who can suffer. Yeah, it, um, it's interesting because you hear this, you hear it come up actually in ways that you don't expect. Like, you know, you hear sometimes people say like, I don't know if I want to have a kid right now in the, in the way the world is the moment. Right. So you hear people actually ask this philosophical question, whether they realize it or not. Right. So there is this really understandable intuition behind the antinatalist position that is, in some circumstances at least, right, if you soften the view to sometimes birth is wrong, almost everyone will agree. Aside from, like, some really devoted religious evangelicals, everyone's going to say there are times where maybe you should lay off the trying to have children a little bit. Um and, and, and it ties into this intuition that there are certain situations in which that child is highly likely to suffer. So I think probably the other main reason, besides this feeling a little trolly as a view, that this has picked up more traction in the modern world is that people have, through information technology, been made acutely or maybe over-realistically over or whatever. People are very keenly aware of the suffering of the world, and they might feel that it's hard to justify bringing someone into a world when they have so much knowledge of all the bad things that could happen. And so, all right, so go on this time journey with me for a moment. Imagine, you know, hundred years in the future or something. We're going to break open the time stone. Yeah. (laughs) We're going to break open the time stone. Um, Just imagine that we now live in a society in a very um, like Gattaca kind of world where we can modify people's genes before they're born. Uh, And let's say that like in this world, it is people of a higher class that can do that and lower class people can't afford to have their baby's genes altered. And you're taking a really big risk of, you know, those people being born, right? Like what is, are you ethically bound to not have children if you are of a lower class and can't modify their genes? Maybe it's like that, that would be sort of a dark place that you could take what seems like a reasonable position otherwise, right? If I can't afford to take care of my child and provide them basic resources, that seems like a very reasonable time to hold off on having children. If it's because they are born into a lower caste life of suffering, that does seem like a reasonable situation to also not have children, but it's it's a depressing thing to think about. Though I think the Buddha would say, even and a lot of these antinatalists i think will argue even if the life is going to be fairly likely to be overall happy it's still wrong to bring someone into it because to exist is to be 
stuck in a world of attachments that eventually do go away. So even if you might live forever, all of the things that you enjoy will eventually go away or something like that. And so there's always this underlying problem of suffering. Or another way to think of it is that um, consciousness really only exists because of suffering. So getting back to our, mm. uh, when we did when we did our Gestalt episode a long while back, we talked about how consciousness arises as a method of coping with challenges in the world. So it arises first as an awareness of pain, of problems, and then as a method of uh, addressing and solving and then subsuming those problems back into the background. So there's a fundamental layer, there's a fundamental sense in which to have consciousness is to have suffering. Yeah, that was a position I didn't fully understand and maybe you can unpack it a little bit where, you know, you can present the argument, let's imagine a world where there is zero suffering, right? Everything is perfect. Everything's provided for. No one, no conscious beings are suffering at any level. How could you, how could not you, but the royal you hold a position of antinatalism in that kind of a world? So... That's where you would shift over, I think, to the Kantian kind of view. To the, I think one one solution, one one way to to, to say is to is to go go the the Benatar way and say that Pat Benatar, yeah, it's the oh. same 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 Benatar. Um, <laughs> the idea that you were talking about with the consent thing, mm-hmm. none of, no individual is consenting to be born into that. Um, so whereas the. Uh, you know, the negative, this other view, the, the, the main one we've been talking about is negative utilitarianism, I think, is the best way to tie all of those views together. It's the idea that there's no moral obligation to produce a, a child that might be happy, but there is a moral obligation to not produce a child that is likely to suffer, if that makes sense. So what you see are a lot of these kinds of asymmetries that say we have, an, we have a greater obligation to avoid suffering than we do to generate happiness and that tilts the scales towards not creating individuals at all because of the overall likelihood or chance that they will experience some more unhappiness or some amount of unhappiness and that that drastically is is more important than the the potential amounts of happiness they would experience Hmm. if that makes sense um well, and and in some regard, our society has a. I'm going to use the term "limited antinatalism," meaning that you know, hundreds and hundreds of years ago, women were getting pregnant at a much younger age, right? And men were being part of that at also at a much younger age because lifespans were nowhere near as long, right? People used to die at 30, right? Mm-hmm. That was like you know, you were over 30, you were old. Um, so, you know, our society now, it although there's, you know, a lot of teen pregnancy, it, it's still nowhere near the numbers that it used to be hundreds of years ago. And it is something that we push for as feminists to, you know, allow women to have careers, you know, going to college and um, not having to feel obligated socially to have children. Does that uh, make sense? Yeah. So you mean like these are sort of other factors that are leading to a sympathy towards this position? Sorry, no, no, I, I, I'm, uh, I'm trying to say that you know, because our society is now living in a place where we are not as, as concerned about trying to just survive as mm-hmm. we once were hundreds of years ago, mm-hmm. and that we can now spend time, you know, not having to just work in farms, but doing things like talking about philosophy, um, that no longer do we need women to start reproducing the moment they can, right? This is, harkens back to our, our brief conversation about polygamy and um, mm-hmm. that it is now sort of socially acceptable and uh, something that we push for, for women to have careers to not feel socially obligated to reproduce. Does that make sense? Like in a yeah. way, it's not, it's not antinatalism in, in the most strictest sense, but it's, it's sort of a... yeah. Limited. It's like a a cultural antinatalism. It's not a philosophical position in the sense that people think that birth is bad. It's that um, greater access to birth control, greater access to economic stability allows individuals to make that choice. And in that environment, this view becomes 
plausible, whereas before no one really could adopt this view for the most part because there was a need to have children for for basic survival. Um, so right. I do think that, yeah, absolutely, these are things that uh, have led to this shift. Um, and I think, you know, it, it's interesting because on the on the sort of cultural social end, I would I would imagine that the same people who sort of decry the anti-life modern world with abortion and all these things that um, they they would see all of this and the view of antinatalism as being part of this mental illness that the Western liberal world is caught up in that is leading to lower quality of life for individuals, whereas you and I think it's leading to a higher quality of life for individuals. Yeah. And especially a more equal. Right. Um, so the Benatar view is interesting, right? This idea of uh, consent. It uh, comes after the Kantian view. Uh, a Kant's central argument is called the categorical imperative within ethics. I don't know if we've done, we haven't done a deontology episode, have we? So maybe no. I should do like a double we, up. Yeah, we briefly talked about it in our vocab episode, but. Okay. Right, so the the main principle, again, just as a refresher, is um, the original formulation, there are several formulations of this thing called the categorical imperative. The first one is the universalizability of one's maxims or one's principles for action. So only do a thing that everyone is, it's okay, you're okay with everyone else also doing. So if you're going to lie, be okay with everyone else also lying in relevantly similar circumstances. So that kind of like do unto the... Uh, do unto others as you would like to be done unto you. Yeah, he actually says, I think, or it's referenced that, he, I think he does say specifically that it's very similar in some ways to the golden rule, and that's kind of one formulation. So one of the reformulations that he does is uh, very famously, um, don't treat another person ever as a mere means to an end, but treat them as an end in themselves. Which is Unless to they say, have a really nice end. Unless they have a really nice end and and you know want you to use it for means which is understandable. <laughs> um, but again, right, consent. That's, the, that's what he's getting at here. This is the sort of a, a very essential formulation of how we understand autonomy, I think, in the modern world. Uh, don't take someone and use them as a slave for your own ends. Treat them as having their own ends. That doesn't mean that they can't voluntarily get paid to provide means to other individuals, but mm -hmm. that they have to be willing to autonomously consent to that in a re reasonably non-coercive environment. Basically, yeah, it, it brings up an interesting debate on uh, what some people call like um, like financial slavery, right? Right. Um, or capitalistic Wage slavery. Slaves. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So one might argue that th that all of capitalism is coercive and anti-deontological because it puts people in these environments where they have no other option but to consent to basically modern forms of sharecropping. Mm -hmm. um, and that's, so this is what Benatar uses, right? He says uh, a child can only ever in reality be born as a means to an end for the parents. You can never bring a child into the world for their own ends because they can't consent to it. So you're always treating them as a means to an end when you give birth to a child rather than as an end in themselves. And therefore it violates the categorical imperative. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. The first time I ever was exposed to this sort of philosophical idea was I was taking this class in my first year of undergrad. It was like a, like a public speaking class. Uh -huh. And uh, we, we had to do these like projects where we had to like, you know, come up with some topic and then talk about it right in front of the class. And we learned like techniques on how to like move and use your hands and that kind of a thing. And so he demonstrated and he talked about how he didn't want to have kids and how him and his wife talked about it. And one of the things he said, which I had never thought of as a perspective was, and this was the crux of his argument was if we have a kid, then that means that my wife will pay less attention to me and more towards our child because like they'll have to, right? We have to take care of our kids and that requires some amount of attention. Um, I mean, I don't 100% agree with you, but that's an interesting perspective I'd never thought. So... Because you were... The reason why I brought that up was because you were saying how 
it's a means to an end. It's sort of a selfish means to an end, right? Because mm-hmm. the the individual that's being born can't consent to it. Right. And you're saying it might not always be a means to an end because they'd rather just have the attention themselves? Yeah. That, that I think, is possible. Uh, I think in that context, though, it would be likely that the child is being used as a... Benatar would argue the child is being used as a means to an end for the mother, but not the father. Right. Right. Um... So, and like Benatar uses some other interesting like asymmetries that I think some people find intuitively appealing and others don't. So, for example, he argues <clears throat> that the absence of pain is good, even if that good is not enjoyed by anyone. But on the other hand, the absence of pleasure is not bad unless there is someone for whom this absence is a is a t- depriving them of of pleasure. So, again, it creates that asymmetry that tilts the scales towards just not having anybody at all. Yeah. What about, like, the Catholic Church has a pol- essentially a policy of antinatalism for their priests? Um, it's not, I mean, it's not really, like, it's trying to have them be celibate as a, as a t- sign of devotion, but it, the means of that is antinatalism, right? You mean the result? Or the result, yes. Yeah. Yes, it seems like. Um, and there's always been, I think, as far as I know, within cultures, groups that are sort of selectively celibate for various purposes. And it's usually viewed as a sacrifice. Right. right? In the Catholic Church, it's viewed as you are sacrificing the pleasure of a family life for the sake of a devotion to a cause. Yeah. So... Uh, I think there's an invisible man in the clouds. Yeah. Overall, I would not point to the, the Catholic church as an antinatalist group. They seem, <laughs> I thought you were going to say, I wouldn't point to the Catholic church as a moral compass. <laughs> that too. <laughs> yep. No, I think they're very pro children of various ages. <laughs> For the um, record, I did not make that joke. No, I made that joke. I, I wanted to. No, I, I did. didn't. I did it. I went there. I feel okay about it. Um, uh, if we lose my patrons, it's fine. That's the end. <laughs> Whatever. I'll be poor. It's okay. Um, so, this is a good joke. Yeah. Um, I also want to point out one other argument um, before I'm, I, we can, I can lay my cards down on how I feel about this all, all these various arguments. Um, the antinatalists uh, is, a, again, a mix of deontological and utilitarian, but sort of slanting back towards the utilitarian arguments. will point out that if you have a child, you are responsible for all of the harms caused by that child. Right. Right. And so producing a child harms other animals, other sentient beings. It impacts the environment. Like it harms any child that that child then has, if you've accepted any of these principles. So it's just like, there's all this compounding of harm that right. they see they, happening. They probably grow up to be a fuck face and, and are telling other people, that they hate their stupid fucking face and causing right. all sorts of suffering. I, I, They're crying on airplanes. Ugh, it's just terrible. Yeah, this is why, you know, like I try to think about what things I, I love most about not having children. And I, I sort of go back and forth between the horror of having to worry if that child is going to get sick and the horror of worrying that that child grows up to be a terrible person. Mm-hmm. And it's just like, how do you how do you cope with either of those? Um, but I'm very, obviously I'm very sympathetic to the people who have that experience. Um, so I think that's all the main arguments and basically they'll say, you know, they'll point to the fact that human beings are biologically so strongly programmed to want children and to ignore the harmful consequences and harms to the children because of biology and evolution that, um, we have to be really, really skeptical about our justifications for having those kids to the point where it's basically never justified. The thing that's really interesting to me is how, you know, we come up with all these different systems and uh, constructs on essentially regulating our animal side, right? Like mm-hmm. we have we have laws that you shouldn't kill people, even though the animal side of us may want to kill someone, right? You know, we may want to seek revenge. We may, like, there's all these things like, I'm starving. I want to go and steal stuff so I can eat. Like, we have all these ways of preventing the animal parts of us. And this seems like another one of those types of sort of philosophical 
ideas of like mm-hmm. trying to do the opposite of what instinctually we want to do. Yeah. And that's a lot of what you often end up seeing in ethical theory is uh, ethical philosophy pitted against some piece of moral psychology, the way that we were built to, to preference certain views over others. And, you know, you see the same thing with the vegetarians. Peter Singer will say over and over and over again that like, yes, I understand that you think that you are the top of the food chain and therefore deserve to eat whatever, but like they still suffer and you can't ignore that suffering and you can't ignore the suffering of your children just because you want to have them. Um, so, I, yeah, that's the strongest I think I can steal man an argument that ultimately I don't agree with. Uh, but that is that is my position. I don't think that I don't ultimately find any of this overwhelmingly compelling. And it's not just, I think, the pragmatist in me that thinks it's laughable that you're going to convince people to never, ever have children again. Um, I, I think, think there there are situations where that may be true. Right. You can imagine a not too distant future where we start overpopulating the world and running out of resources and we try to adopt a not antinatalism across the board, but a reduced natalism kind of a thing. Maybe like, like a like, like a plan. Japan? I think like Japan does that. Uh-huh. That they have restrictions on the amount of kids, or is it China? They there were like, um, yeah, in China there were um, uh, programs for how many kids you could have, and it led to serious serious problems. Yeah. Um, maybe what we could do is just take everyone and kill half of them. Oh. Right? Indiscriminately. Right? That's an, ob- that's an oblique reference for folks. Yeah. Um, all I'm saying is, there's some movies recently that are pretty good on the antinatalism debate. Um, <laughs> and, and, and the... Uh, it's, a, it's actually a fascinating ethical like dilemma in a way. Of right. A way of reducing suffering in the long term by causing a little bit of suffering in the short term. I mean, no one, I think no one wants to judge. It, it's funny. This is the discussion that I've, I've gone back and forth with, with my, um, I guess I could call them breeders. I think they self-identify as breeders. Uh, <laughs> I think you called Thomas a breeder at one point. <laughs> right. I probably did. Breeder friends. Um, or like, ethically, I can make the argument, you know, if there's a family living out on a prairie and like one of their children is going to start, all their children are going to starve to death or you can kill one of the children and the other ones might survive the winter. Like doesn't the utilitarian or, you know, doesn't any reasonable ethical view really command that we, we make the hard choice. And my friends will respond and say, I mean, maybe, but the the family's never going to recover. They're all going to be dead inside. They're going to be shells of themselves and it's not going to work out anyway. So it, it doesn't save anybody in the long term. We're, there was also those stories during Nazi Germany where, you know, families huddled up and the babies started crying and, and they would smother the baby in order to save the group, right? Right. So, you know, like, if, you ta- like, if you take that and you imagine. go large with it, then it's hard to see why scaling it up isn't also justified, I guess, is, is the one concern. Um, so I think there are a couple of, like, uh, release valve solutions that could be implemented here along the lines of things like adoption. a gulag we can get a gulag going i was gonna go with adoption but we can also do a gulag oh, those yeah. are both potential solutions let's see let's workshop there's no bad ideas here man no bad ideas yeah um you know the the answer i gave i think back on the sio podcast was that i think the first one's free i think everyone can everyone can claim a right to a first child and then after that, maybe you should consider adoption or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think it's going to be hard to hold people to that in any kind of way without creating a really immoral kind of situation. Um, my other argument against all of this, I guess, is a kind of existentialist argument that goes along the lines of the the thought experiment. What would you do if someone asked if you wanted to be reborn and live the same life over and over and over again? Would you still choose to live it exactly the same kind of way or not exist at all. And I, I would continue to live and exist because uh, whether it's my privilege or not, I don't know, but I, I have enjoyed all of the good and all of the bad and would live all of it over again the same way. Um, I, 
Yeah. yeah. What do you think? I don't know. Uh, I mean, I think, I think in one life I might take Roy off the grid. <laughs> Just go way, way off the grid on that one. I'm, I mean, but if, <laughs> we haven't if had it, a, we haven't had a Rick and Morty reference in a while. I thought I'd throw one in. It's good. But if the suffering quotient really does stay the same every single time, you know, sitting here being, you know, stressed, exhausted, overworked, anxious about medical situations, anxious about moving, like all the things that I have to experience, I still, I wouldn't change anything. I mean, I wouldn't, I, I wouldn't change anything if it meant A, not existing or B, being fundamentally different than who i am now yeah it is it is kind of suffering all the way down but uh it's something i'm fascinated with which is uh sort of fascinated by death in terms mm -hmm. of like i'm an atheist and so i don't think anything happens once i die and it's going to be like how it was before i lived but I'm still like I'm still open to the possibility that that I'm completely wrong and there's something and I don't mean a deity, but like some ex like continuing of consciousness beyond death. And I'm fascinated by it and no one will ever know until you die. And then you you may never know because you'll be dead and it won't matter. Right. I do like that. I mean, I, I do like to think of it as that ending that I never get spoiled for me, even if it may just be a blackout. And that's that. Mm -hmm. um it'll be a really impressive blackout i think i won't be there to enjoy it but as far as cinematic blackouts go it'll be pretty effective right you know just be looking at that sunset and it's just blackout right and scene <laughs> and scene um but i don't i don't get anxious about death i guess i don't even though I enjoy life and enjoy, I mean, maybe it's that I'm still too young and naive to real, be realistic about my own non-existence. Maybe as I get older, the, the animal brain will kick in more and I'll be more and more anxious about death. But I feel like relative to some people I know, I'm not, I'm not fixated on it. Um, I think I've, if I were gone tomorrow, I would have had a good experience. I would have had a good run. And like, to quote Al Pacino, it's got to close out sometime. Yeah. Speaking of, should we uh, close this on out? Do you have any, any closing thoughts here? I don't think so. Um, we hit all the high notes, all the low notes. If you could do this podcast over again, would you do any part of it differently? <laughs> no, uh, I, I decided a very long time ago to not live my life with regrets and that I try to make the best decisions I can with the information I have. And although I, I'm not saying I don't make mistakes, uh, but I'm definitely, I don't live a regretful life, mm -hmm. which is, which is, I think an, an important distinction, right? To live a, a regretful life. You're always living in the past. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I, I tend to agree. I don't like, and I'm, I'm very hard on myself when I do something wrong and mm -hmm. I, it, it sticks with me for a while. Uh, and, and then I, I let it go. And I try not to hold on to long-term regrets. I try to just let them get as much get as much information out of them as possible. I guess. Uh, yeah, I, I'm I'm of the same boat. Yeah. One one final, I guess, maybe distinction I'll I'll make here is that, uh, especially with the consent view, there's a distinction between it's not okay to give birth to someone and. I therefore have to kill off all of the people who are currently suffering right now. Or half you know what of I mean? them. Right, the utilitarian view, right, might say it's okay to kill off half of them uh, to save the other half. Um, the, uh, the deontological Kantian view would say it's not okay, I think. It would say once they're in the world, they have the choice, the autonomy to kill themselves if they want to and decrease the their own suffering. Mm -hmm. Well, maybe not free, but right. Conventionally free. Uh, the, the David Dennett kind of free, mm -hmm. <laughs> the deflated kind, uh, they can, they can do that, but you can't take their life away from them against their will. It's just compounding one non-consensual action on top of another. Right. But if you could snap your fingers and they were never born, Mm. I don't know. That's a tricky one. Yeah. It's, 
probably still wrong. I think snapping your fingers and you're never born is probably still violating their current consent. Yeah, it's interesting. Like if if they never existed. Okay, hypothetical, right? If you could snap your fingers and make someone not exist and not in the sense of like they disappear and you knew who they were, but like they disappear and you have never knew like this. This is all right. Going back to Star Trek, right? Yar coming back, right? Where they do that alternate timeline, mm-hmm. right? Where they go through that sort of like time wormhole thing. Right. Right. And all of a sudden Yar exists, right? The F like the ethical problem of setting the ship back to where it came will make Yar not exist anymore. Mm-hmm. And not not dead, but not exist, which is, I think, a different... It's an important distinction, right? Yes, I think so. Um, I mean, it's, you know, it's an abstract one for us right now because we don't have that kind of technology or anything, but I think it is an interesting kind of distinction. I do find the the rewriting timeline, time travel stuff to be really uh, interesting stuff. There's a, a somewhat obscure... But um, I think really well done sci-fi uh, low budget movie. I hope is still on Netflix. It's called Lunopolis. Hmm. Yeah, you should check know. it out. It, it it reminds me of Primer. It's not quite as brilliant as Primer, but it is still I think quite underrated. Um, and it's about it, it involves a lot of things, but one thing it involves is time travel. I recommend it. Hmm. Interesting. I was gonna reference um that that um philosophical cartoon where it's someone jumping out of a time machine i killed hitler and the other person's like who (laughs) who yeah is that what you think you are a hero saved the world didn't i once talk to me after you've done it a couple more times uh our hero of the week this week this was sent to us via jeremiah meme lord traeger uh i like to dox him whenever possible (laughs) Um, this is the u.s teacher of the year hands donald trump a letter from her refugee student um the name of the teacher is uh, mandy manning uh, and she teaches uh students from trump's travel ban list and while being presented a uh, special award for being teacher of the year um she provided mr trump with a letter about uh the refugee crisis i so a i love that she did that b in the video it's hilarious because she has rbf like the whole time and it's awesome to just watch it i'm going to link the video in in the show notes of uh, her receiving the award from trump but it is just hilarious the stink eye that she's giving him yes she certainly has the look of a liberal who's not happy to be in the same room (laughs) it's so glorious because like she she's she's like happy that she's getting the award, but also like really not happy, like having to share the spotlight with this guy. Yeah, I like this quote from her speech. I am here for refugee and immigrant students, for the kids in the gay straight alliance and for all the girls I've coached over the years to send a message, uh, send them the message that they are wanted. They are loved. They are enough and they matter. Ugh, I want to consensually kiss this woman on the mouth. Yeah, I'm not sure she's your type, or you're you're her type, perhaps. Uh, but either way, she seems like she's a very, very lovely person, and I, I'll certainly want to uh, meet this individual at some point. I know, right? Have a tea or something. A tea? Discuss pedagogy. I bet she knows a lot about pedagogy. Mm. Yeah, so she gets to uh, a year-long tenure as an advocate for teachers and speak at a bunch of events around the country. So that'll be nice. She'll get to spread this kind of message. It says, uh, go out today, seek an experience you've never had before, get uncomfortable, challenge your own perceptions to find clarity, be fearless, be kind, meet someone new. So we, I would imagine that the free speechers will pick up on her very quickly, right? She sounds like mm-hmm. someone who's advocating for free and rigorous debate. Yeah. <laughs> totally. All right. Well, I guess that's it for us for another week. Thank you all so much for joining us. And thanks again for all your support. Thanks for sending messages. Um, We have uh, received our first copies of the Void merch. Um, I will hopefully be posting some photos shortly. Um, But if you haven't gotten a chance, head on over to our website, uh, voidpod.com, and check out the Void merch (laughs) area. We'll have hats up by the end of the day as well. Um, I had to get some 
updating work done. And thanks again to our wonderful Void artist for taking the uh, extra time to make that artwork uh, work for the various formats that our printers use. Um, it really, there's a lot of work that you don't necessarily see that goes on behind the scenes of, of people willing to donate their time and energy to the show to make all this happen. So we really do appreciate all that. Like, I cannot wait for these hats to come out because <laughs> they look, they look so fucking cool. It's actually my desk, like my uh, desktop background. Oh, nice. Yeah, no, as soon as we're done with this recording, I'm going to go make sure that's all sorted. So by the time everybody hears all this, it'll definitely be in good shape. Sweet. So, yeah, thank you all very much. And we'll catch you next week. We would like to thank our new patrons, Preston Belvis. We would also like to thank our top patrons, Jesse Rubidowitz, Dave Maslick, Abe, Peasants with Pitchforks and Glow Sticks, Corey Johnston, host of the Brainstorm podcast and the Hardcore Skeptic, CampQuest.org, 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 Mr. Nobody, Chad Trait, Reasonalurus Podcast, and Joel. If you want to become a patron, find us at patreon.com slash embrace the void. As always, remember, you are the void and the void is you. This is the void. This is the void. Yep. <laughs>